So we are on chapter 10. Uh, anybody remember what uh, chapter 9 was? Free will. Free will. What was the uh, final determination? Do we have free will or not? Does anybody remember? I had to monitor last week. Oh, okay. All right, so you, you're, you're excused from answering. Uh, unless you already know the answer to the question. Do we have free will? No. No? Well, depends on how you define it. Okay. I guess. Definitions. Definitions are, are very important, yes. <clears throat> We're free agents, so we are responsible for our decisions. Very good. But we're captive. What are we captive to? Sin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bad. Mm -hmm. So, following up on that lesson of free will, we are now into effectual calling. Does anybody have a simple definition as to what effectual, effectual calling might be? I'm going to shut that door. Oh, I should have asked Alan to do it so he could get more steps. <laughs> All right, let's just uh, take take the words, all right? Effectual and calling. What is a calling? Like a beckoning or imploring. Uh, a beckoning or what? Like imploration. Imploring, okay, good. Caleb, no. Caleb. Caleb? Caleb. Cam. Cam, okay. Cam, okay. Is it short for, for Cameron? Cameron? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so beckoning, beckoning to to oneself, you know. Hey, come here, right? What's effectual mean? Produces a result. Good. Has the intended result. It produces the intended result. That's a better yeah. way of phrasing. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's go to uh, the sections. We'll read through them. Um, did uh, did Larry get you a new copy? No, he said keep this to okay. One. All right. All right. So, um, chapter ten, paragraph one. These are really um, filled with very important words, and the orders of these words are extremely important as well. So I'm going to try to <laughs> do them justice. Those whom God have, hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, mm. 
to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their hearts, their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Jam-packed. Okay. So this effectual call, God... By the way, the one who made everything out of nothing, who is uh, all-powerful, <clears throat> calls. He calls people out of their sin and death. <clears throat> now, he uses certain means to do so. Do we know what... Uh, what the means of God saving someone is. How does he accomplish it? Like, for instance, uh, I do my work by means of logging into a computer at home and then connecting to my network at work. That VPN connection is the means by which I am able to do my work from home. It's, it's the, the tools that I use to make something happen. God saves those by means. By the way, I'm, it, it's in here. I, I, I said it. By his word and spirit. So then... If, uh, if he is, or if the authors of the confession here are differentiating between God and spirit, they must be pointing out that it is God the Father who is doing this particular work. There's a, there's a difference, when, especially if you hear just God, you can attribute that work to any one of the three, right? But when there is a specific differentiation between God and the Son, or God and the Spirit, we know that there is uh, there has to be a differentiation in who they're talking about, and they're specifically talking about, in this case, God the Father. So God the Father is the author of... Um, the effectual call. <clears throat> Why is it important to know that or to, to make sure that we have that differentiation? Why would it even matter to say that it's God the Father who calls and not the Holy Spirit who calls.
Oh. It's not surprising. Um, a lot of a lot of us just simply don't think in these terms on a regular basis. So it's it's uh, kind of like um, exercising a muscle. And I'll, my wife will tell you I hate the e word. Exercise is odious to me. Which is why my muscles are fairly incapable of doing what they ought to be doing. So let's uh, let's continue. Why would it be important for us to know that it, it's God the Father, as opposed to God the Spirit, that calls? Remember, why were the confessions written? Why were the councils had? Why were their uh, uh, creeds defined at these councils? Usually it's as a heresy, as a pushback against some sort of a heresy, or, or <clears throat> even if it doesn't fall into the category of heresy, some sort of in, incorrect theology. So they didn't believe, uh, so it it defines the Trinity and the roles of the Trinity. Okay. So, but we're all the way here in effectual calling. Haven't we already discussed the Trinity in, in this confession? So we've already made the differentiation between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why in the effectual calling is it important that we differentiate? And, and why isn't the Son included in this? Let me read this first line again. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Is it possible that if we didn't differentiate it, that we could say that um, anyone who we preach the gospel to, which is by means of the word, could believe without the power of the Holy Spirit involved? Or... What if we said, ah, you know what? God is sovereign. The Holy Spirit can convert whoever, whomever he wants, whenever he wants. He doesn't need me to go and preach the word to him. It's absolutely essential for the normal method that God uses to save people that it be done by the word by preaching of the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the spirit is the means by which God saves people. So is the word. The word and the spirit together is the means by which God saves people. So we want to make sure that we're not stepping into some um, kind of dead orthodoxy 
by saying, oh, we just need the word. Mm -hmm. So the word here that's capitalized is not speaking of Christ? That's correct. It's talking about... As opposed to John 1, 1? Correct. The word? That is correct. Okay. Yes. Now, it's interesting, though, because when we say the word, what are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel, typically, the whole of God's counsel, not just the gospels, but we're talking about the the complete unfolding of Scripture from beginning to end, the, the uh, story of redemption, of recognizing that God created, He's all-powerful, we as human beings fell, we need a Savior to redeem us, that Savior is Christ, He rose again, and will come again. All right, so he, well, he died, buried, was resurrected, and ascended. So in this particular case, the means that God uses is the word, meaning the preaching of that story, which is the word of Christ. But yes, specifically here it's talking about the story about what God did, namely his son, to bring people to himself. Um, uh, so this, by, by placing it like this and saying that it is, it, it is absolutely necessary that God, by his normal working, uses the word and the spirit because we don't want people to just say, hey, we can just preach the gospel and whoever believes, they're going to come and whoever doesn't believe, well, that's on them. And that's not what scripture says. Um, God is the one who predestined. God is the one who calls. God is the one who glorifies. Um, it is not of the will of man, but of the will of God, right? Um, but then it also protects against, um, what's, what's the opposite of dead orthodoxy? Uh, mysticism. It protects against mysticism, that everything's done by the Holy Spirit. We have no part in it. There's, you know, it's all sort of this secret thing that happens. And that's not the case either. God's seeking and seeking, I mean, he doesn't really have to seek, but that's the word that's used. He's seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not just in spirit, and it's not just in truth. It's spirit and truth. Those two things have to be combined. Okay. Now, when does he do this? In his appointed and accepted time. So he predestinated when? To those whom God hath predestinated unto life. When did he do that? 
before the beginning? Before the beginning, before the foundation of the world. That's right. Very good. But when does he call? In his appointed time. So, the predestination happened before, before time began. And the calling happens at a particular point in time in the believer's life. And it's an effectual call, meaning if he calls, do you have the ability to not answer the call? I'm seeing shaking heads. I'm seeing blank stares. So, how old was Jeremiah when we had that discussion in the car? Just a few months old. Just a few months old. Uh, Prior to getting married, my wife and I were walking around a park, and I had been hearing about the doctrines of grace. And at that time, we didn't really call them the doctrines of grace. We called it Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. What what are these five points of Calvinism? I was basically a brand new believer. I didn't know a lot of of all of these things. And I I asked, do you know what these five points of Calvinism are? And she said, yeah, I don't really believe them. And she went through them, and I'm like, wow, I really don't believe them either. Well, that was before we were married, and then uh, a few months after Jeremiah was born, so that was four years into our marriage, I had become a five-point Calvinist, and she still wasn't there with me. And so we're sitting in the in the car. I, I don't even remember after it was after something, but we had we had Jeremiah in his car seat, and our driveway was like this, so we're just kind of re- relaxing in the you know kind of reclined and he's asleep so we're just having a discussion in our driveway and I said uh, so you you know I'm a five point Calvinist now right she said what <laughs> uh, it was a good thing that we were resting comfortably comfortably because she would have fallen out of her chair um, but the point at least with the effectual calling, which uh, lines up with which point of Calvinistic doctrine. Come on, we all know the the five points of Calvinism, don't we? Tulip. Tulip. Irresistible grace. Yeah, exactly. So it's total depravity, unconditional election, which, by the way, unconditional election is the predestination that we're talking. L is limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And P is the preservation of the saints, right? So, we're like, God can, people resist God's grace all the time. I'm like, yeah, but really? Is God going to lavish his love on someone? Is God going to start a work in someone by bringing them from death to life 
and then they're going to be able to say no? Really? He's the one who created absolutely everything out of absolutely nothing. Really? Doesn't scripture say that what he begins, he will complete? Hmm. So this irresistible grace thing, uh, if, if God wakes you up from the dead because you're dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, how are you going to resist his grace if you are now alive, which, by the way, being alive means being attached to the source of life. How are you going to say, oh, no, no, I, I don't need that source of life? Can you? God is all-powerful. He can make you... In some way, we, we probably won't ever be able to figure out. He can make you into something else, make your will align with His, and yet it still be your willing choice. Not free choice, I said willing choice. To choose Him. But you can only choose him once you've been raised from death to life. Okay, so then, is there a place where we could say that uh, effectual calling happens before or after regeneration? No. It is the same thing as regeneration. This effectual calling is literally the process of God transitioning you from death to life. <sighs> so, it's at his appointed time. Oh my goodness, I'm still only on the first sentence. Yikes. Guess I really should speed up here. All right, let's see. Here's the transition it was talking about. So out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, right? Uh, Ephesians 1 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I skipped some in there. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. So he, he had this transition where he changes us in an instant from death to life. He does it by the word of his, by his word and by his spirit. And this awakens us to who God is, His power, His glory. And in that awakening, we are made able to see that Christ is 
the solution to our problem. And that is uh, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. That comes from Ezekiel. And now, this is why I, I mentioned uh, last class about the free will. In that process, God renews our wills. So, Adam had a free will. He could choose to do good or not, which is doing evil. He chose to do the evil. Not only was he a free moral agent, but he also had free will. As soon as he cut himself off from the source of life, God said, in that day you shall surely die. Um, you know, it, it, that's sometimes, that's a little bit hard to, to get to as well. Wait a minute, but he didn't die. He lived on for hundreds of years. Think about a, a flower. While it's on the flower bush, let's say a rose, while it's on the rose bush, it's alive. It has the, it, the feeding of the, the whole bush is is continuing to feed that flower and that, that um, branch. And while it's attached, it is alive. The moment you cut it off, even though it may remain pretty for a week or two or three, depending on how much aspirin you put into the water, it's still dead. I mean, it may show some signs of life, but it has been cut off from the source of life. So it's dead, no matter how long it appears to still be alive. Where was I going with that? Uh, now, he has renewed our will. So while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we could not choose to do good because our will was bound and we were slaves of sin, anything that we did, even if it was horizontally uh, relatively good or bad, it was still sin because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now he's made us alive. And he has renewed our will. He has made it possible for us to choose to do good. We can literally choose the good. We can actually and truly choose not to sin. Why is it then that we find ourselves in sin so often? Because we still have the flesh. Right? 
<clears throat> but in that part of us that he has renewed, that spirit, the, that heart of flesh that he has put into us after taking out that heart of stone, he has aligned our wills with his. He has made us capable of choosing to do the things that please him. And that's why this particular chapter comes after the free will chapter. Couldn't have discussed, we couldn't have understood the renewing of our will unless we understood what our wills really are. That they're, they're slaves to something. that we're either slaves of sin or we're slaves of righteousness. Now, we are kind of in that in-between state where we can offer ourselves up to be slaves of sin or we can offer ourselves up to be slaves of righteousness. Eventually, I can't wait for this to happen, we will be completely slaves of righteousness and never worry about sin again. What a glorious day that's going to be. <clears throat> but he renews our wills. And by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. Meaning, uh, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works that, uh, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? So the reason... Or at least the the end outcome of our being raised with with Christ by grace you have been saved is so that we will walk in the good works that God has prepared that we would do in the future by His almighty power determining them to that which is good, meaning. Exactly that. He's determined we're going to do good works. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Irresistibly drawing us to Jesus Christ. But in saying that irresistibly drawing us to Jesus Christ, he's not saying that we're robots. We're, where we don't have a choice anymore. He's not saying that, uh, okay, you're saved, you will choose Christ. That's the effect of it. But, yet, so as they come, most freely, our free moral agency is, in, as a, is at play here. Our renewed wills is at play here. And being made willing by his grace. So because he renewed our wills, now we come to Jesus Christ irresistibly, but we come to him because we want to come to him. By the way, all of this happens. Everything that we just talked about, it all happens at a 
moment in time when you are regenerated, when you are redeemed. We, we have to break up the, the steps. We have to break up the, the way that this all works just so we can wrap our tiny little pea brains around it. We say that there's a, a um, the, the salvation, the, uh, the order of salutis, the order of salvation. All right? we, we say that, that we have to be made alive. Well, we have to be first elect. We have to be made alive. We have to then uh, respond in faith. And all of those things, we, we, then there, you know, there's sanctification and glorification, and it goes on. But we say that they all have to happen in a particular order. And that's, that's good, because we have to understand how they happen so that we don't get our theology mixed up. Because if we say, hey, uh, we, have to, we have to respond or we have to choose Christ, but we say that that's before being regenerated, we're now saying that we can choose Christ even while we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So saying all of this and actually breaking this down into, into little bitty chunks and little pieces that this comes before this and then this and then this and then this, it's important for our theology so that we don't get it wrong, so that we don't think that us choosing Christ was just by our own wills. It wasn't. God effectually called us to be alive, to be regenerated, that's to be alive, to come out of death to life, to believe in Christ, to have faith, to exercise that faith, so that we can then be called just, but it all happens in the twinkling of an eye. And we have been made willing by his grace. Meaning it's nothing that we do. It was all of God. Okay. Wow. Um, yep. We're going to have to speed up a little bit. Um, let's go to chapter or paragraph two. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. We don't have time to go through all of the stuff I want to go through. Okay, so um, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. 
anybody want to recite the Ephesians part where it says that? This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. By grace alone. Because we're his workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. Okay, so it's from free and special grace alone. And it specifically says special grace here because there's uh, something known as what? Common, grace. common grace. Exactly. That God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. By the way, in this context, rain is a good thing. Um, I know we don't necessarily think of it that way, but the rain falling on the just and the unjust is a blessing from God. Um, even those who are not redeemed still have the ability to love, to uh, well, have food, have life, have breath. This is this is different. What this is talking about is different than that common grace that he applies to his entire creation. This is a special grace, that which is reserved for those whom he will call to himself. And then it says, not from anything at all foreseen in man. In other words, God didn't look down through the corridors of time and say, huh, Cameron, hmm, Cameron's going to choose me. Okay, because he's going to choose me, I'm going to elect him, and then I'm going to call him. Nope, doesn't work that way. You chose him, and it was a real choice. But he had predestinated you from before the foundation of the world. And he did that solely by his free choice. His truly free choice, because he truly does have free will. So it wasn't something that he saw in Cameron or in any of us. And why is that important? Why is it important that we say that God didn't choose us based upon how we would choose him? Because if it's something that we did and we can boast of it, then we can lose it. Okay. We can boast in it. We can lose it. We can say that it was our power that did it. Um... He's just responding, and he would, in that case, just be responding to <coughs> you. Right. And, yeah, so. Then what would that That's mean? not God. That's not God. <laughs> that means that God is affected by an outside source. <laughs> that means that he can change by being influenced by something outside of himself. If he can change, he's not God. God is unchangeable. 
there is, with him, there is no shifting shadow of change. So that's why it's very important that we say that even though Scripture calls it foreknowledge, that he knew us, that he, that he definitely has foreknowledge, because he knows all things and he's outside of time, but that's not the reason why he elected us from before the foundation of the world. That's not the reason why in a moment in time here he effectually called us and raised us from the dead. Because of his free and special grace alone. Okay. Uh, nor, so not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature being wholly passive. So we have no power. Why do we not have any power? Because remember, we're talking about being effectually called. So when are we effectually called? When we're dead in our trespasses and sins. If we're dead, do we have any ability to bring ourselves to life? No, of course not. Do we have the power? Did Lazarus, while he was dead four days and he stinketh, did he have the power to say, hey, Jesus is up there. I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk out to him. No. He had to be called. And even though he was dead and stinketh, he was raised from death to life. So we are wholly passive therein. We are acted upon by an outside force, that outside force being God. Not saying that God is just a force. Please understand that. being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. So this effectual call is all of grace, all of God's free grace. Nothing to do with us. We don't choose Christ before we are regenerated. And we are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and in that moment, he, being the one who is effectually called, is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Okay. If you were on death row and somehow, you were, your sentence was commuted. Your sentence was commuted. But it was necessary that someone died in your place. And someone was willing to die in your place. I guess it's possible that for a good man, someone may be willing to die. How would you feel towards that person? Gratitude. Cameron, you 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 were like, what 
was the emotion that was going on in your in your heart at that very moment? The emotion, what was it? Could you describe it as love? And why? Not because you drummed up that love for that uh, for that person, but because they showed you their love for you first. Your response is going to be love. That's how he enabled us to answer the call. To embrace the grace that's offered. Now, the, the next sentence, like the next part of the sentence, because it's like all one run-on sentence here. And that, meaning um, the ability to answer the call, the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead, What was the power that raised up Christ from the dead? The Father. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God the Father was a, a part of this, yes. But it the, the power is attributed to the Holy Spirit. But it was something that heretofore had never been seen. It is an immeasurable power. And it's that exact same power that raised Christ from the dead that raises us from the dead. Do you think we're going to be able to resist that? I mean, what are we really in control of in this life? Pretty much nothing. And we think that we can resist God's grace? That would make God be like the Hulk when he was uh, smashing Loki to the ground and saying, Puny God! That would make God puny if we could say, Yeah, you brought me from death to life, but I don't need your grace. And then us being able to resist it. Uh-uh. God is not a puny God. Okay. We gotta go on. This one is gonna be um, potentially um, controversial. Um, I know that my wife and I have had many a discussion on this. And I know where I stand on this, but here's, here's the next paragraph. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word.
Who here believes that all babies go to heaven? The key words, elect. Ah, very good. You were listening. Elect. So all elect infants, all elect persons who are incapable of understanding. That's the outward call. We have an outward call, which is when someone preaches the gospel to us. The inward call is this, this effectual call. So for someone who is incapable of being or understanding the word preached, if they are elect, they are still regenerated and saved. Wait a minute. Didn't we say earlier that um, it's uh, by his word and spirit? Well, infants don't understand language yet. How can they understand the word? Or did, did the confession just contradict itself? Obviously, by me even asking those questions, the answer is no. Kind of a given. Remember, I was very um, particular about saying the normal means that God uses. The normal way that God works is by the Word and the Spirit. But that does not mean that God is incapable of working outside of the normal means that he himself established. I mean, he himself established the way that the earth moves around the sun. But there was a period of time where he made the sun go backwards. That's contrary to the normal means. Or the long day of Joshua, the sun just stayed there. Did he stop the earth from moving around the sun? He must have. How is how fast is the earth moving? When you think about instantly stopping, it's like everybody flies off the planet. Yeah, if you you know. If you try to think about it too hard, it's going to hurt your brain. God is capable of working outside of the, the normal procedures and, and laws that he has established. Normally, he doesn't. That's why it's called the normal. But he is capable of saving children who don't have the ability to choose him. Well, frankly, none of us have the ability to choose him, right? He's capable of making even those children who can't understand the word to be regenerated. Okay, so does anybody know of a scripture that says that this is possible? What's the first scripture that comes to mind about the death of a child. 
Uh huh. Yep. Do you remember what it said? Uh, not the words exactly, but Don't basically, have to. I know when he says, I'll see him again one day. So he's fasting and praying, and uh, the son dies, and he gets up, he cleans himself off, he eats, and his servants are like, What are you doing? You're supposed to be fasting and praying now. I said, Why? It's over. He's gone. He can't come back to me. But I will go to him. Now David was convinced of his salvation in God. He knew that he was going to be with God when things when his life ended. So him saying that meant that he was also convinced that his son was with God. Okay? But does that scripture say that infants go to heaven? No. It's not... I mean, it, it definitely points to the fact that infants can be in the presence of God, but it doesn't say that they have to be if you look at like Romans 9.10, it says, And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but he saw it, I, I have hated and what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, it continues throughout, yep. but that's what I think of because it is, it's a very hard scripture or it's a very hard concept to think about. Mm -hmm. So, but that says it kind of pretty clearly. That it is God's choice. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated before they had done anything. It's God's choice. It's always God's choice. So, what does that say about infants who die? Frankly, not enough for us to know. Scripture does not tell us enough to know this for certain. We have been told that everything that we need to know for life and godliness is contained in the book of Scripture. So, we have to then conclude that knowing whether infants go to heaven or not, whether it be all infants, no infants, or only the elect infants, is not necessary to know. Now, this is why I do believe, Kevin, like why you said that the, in, that the important word here is elect infants. Because once again, it's all of God's choice. So those whom he has elect, elected, every one of them will be with him. In whatever means he chooses to make that application 
of his election and his calling happen, whether that be because we can't understand the word and the spirit acts upon us, or we can't understand the word and he applies Christ's sacrifice to them, even without their understanding of it. All the elect will be with him. Now, so then we say, okay, how then do we know if the child that we lost, I'm not saying that me, we had not lost a child, praise be to God. But many people have. How can that person be assured that that child is in heaven with God? God is good. God is kind. God is loving. Whatever he does is right and good. Simply because he does it. We can rest in his goodness. We can rest in the knowledge that he loves us. He loves all of his elect. And we in this earth just need to rest upon God's grace. This is a little bit of a circle. I know we're coming close to end of time, but Oh, we're over. I know we're over. <laughs> I was just like I was like I was debating I'm even saying it. But um just my thought is how can we be comforted in that moment? My thought would be so since God is sovereign and he knows all things, the difference between this scripture in Romans and the scripture with David is with David, his son died immediately. And with this scripture, these two children were raised up into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that thought process and you think about from our human thoughts, thinking about God who's above our thoughts, if he has... You know, if he is sovereign over all things and over who lives and who dies and when all these things happen and how all these things happen, there's a reason why he chose Jacob and Esau. Yes. Yeah. Jacob and Esau. Why he chose one to love and one to hate. And he chose that to show his glory in that. Not sure... How much glory is shown from sending a born or unborn child to hell that doesn't necessarily give parents any comfort in that moment and it doesn't necessarily bring him any glory in that moment. Except that from his wrath. Thought, except for except his, wrath, his wrath because is we are all born yeah. we are all born in, in a sinful state yep. that none of us deserve right. anyways. Right. So, yes. Yeah. But it is like if he is sovereign and if he knows that this child is going to die in infancy, 
or childbirth or miscarriage or whatever, then if he knows that and he knew this about that, that is the reason, that's a good reason to be able to say why maybe David had more of a right to feel comfort in that moment versus like here, this, if you just took this scripture by itself and pulled it out, then you just think, well, before a child was born, and it is the case before a child is born that because of nothing they've done, one is going to go to heaven, one and one could go to hell. But also, these children grew up, mm -hmm. and God had that in his thought. Do you know what I'm? Do you know I where totally, I'm going? It's a very I circular totally, statement, totally so I could probably continue in yep. my head forever with it. But do you see where yep. that thought is mm -hmm. is going? I don't. I don't know. I just feel like I, that's. I completely agree with you. I just want you to think about this, in in. Just tweak your thought for just a moment, because I completely agree. Okay. But where you're coming at it is the problem with your thinking. And that is, God doesn't act in a way or for the purpose of us being comforted. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Now, it is a comfort to know that God elects and that all God elects will be saved, whether they be infants or not. Yes. Right? That is a comfort. But... Us being comforted is not what, or even the fact that a child would die in infancy is not what causes God to elect them. Right? Yes. Yeah. Now, he elects them because of his own free grace. His own free choice. And nothing about that person's life is the cause of God's election. But, and this is where I'm going to just have to drop the conversation. And if you have, we are because we are way over. Cameron, I completely agree with you that all infants go to heaven. What? Wait a minute. I didn't even qualify that statement with all elect infants. That you're just going to have to ask me when we're out of class. Because that's way too long of a conversation to finish up here. The last um, paragraph, which we didn't even get to, basically says if you are not effectually called, no matter what you do in this life, you will not be those who are saved. Be among those who are saved. Without the, the effectual calling, you cannot be saved. So, basically, only those that the Father calls will come to Christ. Only those who come to Christ will, will have the Father revealed. Um, so, it gives the, the opposite of the effectual calling. And it says, uh, the effectual calling is this. If you're not effectually called, basically, there's no hope for it. That's my quick and dirty summary of that last paragraph. Um, but yeah, if you want to know my reasons for why I think that all infants go to heaven, I'd be glad to share it with you. Wow, we're done with class.